Hey, my name is Sean Sears, the lead pastor here at Grace Church. I wanna say thank you for being a part of our services this weekend. I'm standing in front of uh, a monument to Robert Gould Shaw and the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment, which was the second all African-American regiment in US military history. And they saw the most action during the Civil War. What made them famous is that while they were out, uh, excuse me, underfunded, undertrained, and under-resourced, they outperformed everybody's expectations and, and behaved remarkably well with, with valor in the Second Battle of Fort Wagner. Uh, so much so that there's a movie called Glory about this regiment that ends with that famous battle. Uh, one of the men who was a part of that battle, his name was Sergeant William Harvey Carney, won the Medal of Honor for his services during that war, uh, he, during that battle. He saw the man, the color guard, the guy who was holding the Union flag get shot and killed, but before the flag hit the ground, um, Sergeant Carney dropped his rifle, ran up and grabbed the flag and ran toward the fort and planted the flag at the parapet right in front of the fort, ran back, got his rifle to continue the battle. When retreat was sounded because it was too fortified of a position, he dropped his rifle again, ran all the way back up to the front, grabbed that flag and brought it back, suffering uh, at least two gunshot wounds in the process. He gets all the way back, hands the flag to the next guy, and he famously says that at least the flag did not touch the ground. While he was not the first African-American to win the Medal of Honor, his actions were the first in the war that earned the Medal of, of honor. And this war was fought uh, between the states um, uh, to end slavery. And I know that some people might would say that it was about states' rights, but it was about the states' rights to preserve slavery. And the North said that while it was wrong to own people, they still considered African-Americans to be less than because they did not want to fight side by side for them. In fact, white soldiers during the Civil War were paid $13 a month. And while the African-American uh, soldiers were promised that same wage, they were only given seven to their credit. They never took their, a dime of their paycheck until they were given their full amount. Robert uh, Gould Shaw, um, uh, his parents who were also abolitionists, Frederick Douglass and several other prominent free and wealthy black men in America fought for them to earn the same wages as everybody else and then they ultimately did. But we're still struggling uh, with that less than, with uh, the racial tension in our country. Uh, and while you already know that, what you might not know is that that same tension existed in the very first church that ever existed in Jerusalem, and that's in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at their story today in Acts chapter 11 to see what we can learn about our story now. In Acts chapter 11, Peter gets in trouble. And to find out why he got in trouble, you have to know what happened in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, the thing that he did was actually a continuation of something that God had done in Acts chapter 9. Uh, this series is called the open source. The idea behind this series is like a, like a computer program that's open source, it's not password protected. It's now available for anybody to download. It's accessible to everyone. And God had taken information that had been guarded closely by one family and all of their descendants and now had to open it up to everybody else. And uh, it starts in Acts chapter nine, where God takes this guy named Saul, who was a, a very zealous uh, Jewish rabbi, and knocks him on his tail end, is what he does, and says, Saul, I have chosen you to make sure that kings and Gentiles, 
uh, hear the message about me, can get the opportunity to repent of their personal brokenness and their sin and to follow after Jesus. The natural question is to ask why God couldn't have done that with, with uh, uh, Peter, James, or John. And the pragmatic answer is because Paul brought something to the table that they didn't have, which was a Roman passport. No matter what happened, Peter, James, and John were never going to get access to Gentile kings because they didn't have a passport. They didn't have access to those people. So while there was definitely things in Paul's past that he needed to repent of and let go of, the overall story of his past was going to become the platform on which God built his future. And in Acts chapter 10, God continues the idea that I am available to anybody with Peter. Peter has a dream on the top of a roof uh, one day, uh, and in this dream, a sheet is let down from heaven, and inside this sheet is all kind of animals that Jews were not allowed to eat. And a voice from heaven says, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter says, I, I won't eat that which is unclean. And then this voice from heaven says, don't call unclean that which God has declared to be clean. And then right after that, he's wondering what this is. He gets messengers that are sent to him from a Roman centurion from a city about an, uh, uh, an hour's boat ride north away uh, to come and tell them about the good news of Jesus. So uh, Peter gets there. He's at the door. He's about to walk into the door of this Roman centurion and he balks. He stops for just a second because he knows that as, as, a, as a devout religious Jewish man, he's not supposed to go into the home of this unclean person. And then he remembers this dream. He goes and, and he tells them about what Jesus had done on behalf of all of mankind. That Jesus had, in, er, had lived an innocent life so that he could earn the right to take the place of those of us who are guilty. Instantly, Cornelius is his name. He repents of his personal sin, places his faith and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and receives God's Holy Spirit and eternal life, uh, which is amazing. And now it's obvious that everybody everywhere now can uh, access God through faith in Jesus. And it's in Acts chapter 11 where, where Peter gets back to Jerusalem now and he gets in trouble for what he had just done. Acts chapter 11, one and two says this, soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. That was that story about Cornelius. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him, and this was their criticism. You entered the home of Gentiles, and you even ate with them, they said. That was the problem, is that the Jews were conditioned to believe that everybody else who wasn't like them was less than, that Peter should keep his distance from certain people because they were less worthy than what they were. Uh, he got called in and got in trouble. And the truth is, racism existed in that first church. Uh, and it's not an American problem. It's a people problem, and it always, always has been. And so in Peter's defense, he recounts to them the dream that we found out about in Acts chapter 10. After he tells them about his dream, he finishes the story this way in verse 15 of Acts chapter 11. As I began to speak, he was preaching to Cornelius and those that were in his house. As I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's words when Jesus had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift that he gave us when we believed the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in the way? When the others heard this, pause. What could they have done? What were the different options? When they heard Peter explain what had happened, they could have tried to argue it away. What I love about these guys is while they came to the table with racial biases, they were more committed to their identity in Jesus than to their ethnic identity because here's their response. Uh, they said, uh, they, they, excuse me, when, when the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. And they said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. So for those of us who are devoted followers of Jesus, like those first followers of Jesus, truthfully, once we turn from our sin, placing our faith and trust on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God's Holy Spirit then becomes a part of who we are. We now see that there really are, from God's perspective, only two types of people in the world. There are only those who have repented of their sins, have believed, and now have eternal life, and those who haven't yet. God sees no distinction between a person's race, their culture, their language, their ethnicity, their nation of origin, their hair texture, their skin color, or the color of their eyes. The problem, though, is that those first followers of Jesus did. God was calling them to an identity that supersedes all other expressions of their identity. Their identity as a child of God and a follower of Jesus was to shape their Jewish expression and not the other way around. Those of us who turn from sin primarily identify ourselves as children of God who have repented of sin and been made right with him by faith in Jesus. And every other expression of our identity flows from my identification with Jesus. So it's not that my identity as I happen to be a white middle-class American now informs the way I live as a follower of Jesus as much as my identity as a follower of Jesus is to inform the way all other expressions of my identity are lived out. So right here, God levels the playing field for everyone. And it's not that God had changed. It's God reaffirms something that he started all the way back in the beginning. All the way back in the beginning, we read in the scriptures that God created uh, our very first two parents and gave them the instructions to fill the entire world with more people who were created in the image of God, who would spend the rest of their lives in perfect relationship with each other, each other and in perfect relationship with him. The problem though is that we began to wander away from God. The cool thing though is that God never stopped loving us because of our sin, because of our brokenness or our selfishness. What he did instead was create a pathway back to him. And to point people to this pathway, he chose a particular family. He chose a man named Abraham and he told Abraham that because you were willing to place your faith and trust in me, you are reconciled to me. And I'm going to use the rest of your descendants to help all of the other nations find their way back to me also. The problem though, is that with each succeeding generation and throughout the centuries, his children and their children and their children began to think more of themselves than what they ought to. They thought the story was now about them. 
So God sent them prophets to remind them that their job was, number one, to repent of their own personal brokenness and sin, but also to be a light to the Gentiles, one of the prophets says, to all nations, another Jewish prophet says, to the rest of the entire world, another prophet says. But they didn't until Jesus comes along and tells his disciples, your job is to now go out there and do what God had intended to happen all along, uh, to give more people more chances to find their way back to me. And what you find now for the first time in the entire Bible is a multicultural, multiracial, multi-ethnic gathering of worshipers of God. From this point on, you see churches begin to start uh, in, in Phoenicia, in Cyprus, and in Antioch. And it's the church of Antioch that I want to spend the rest of our time talking about today. It's in the church of Antioch that you see this truth modeled out. That's this, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you must value every human life as much as you value any human life. So two things happen right here. First, from now on, anybody who ever turns from sin to begin following uh, the, the teachings of Jesus, who uh, place their faith and trust in his death, burial, and resurrection, instantaneously in that moment, they're given God's Holy Spirit. So before this, they could turn from sin and be reconciled to God, and then the filling of God's Spirit in their lives was secondary. From the moment Cornelius comes to faith in Jesus, from now on, it's, it's instantaneous. That's the first thing. The second thing is all of these interracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural churches. In Acts chapter 11, here's the description of the church of Antioch. Uh, verse 22, when the church of Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch to check it out. When he arrived and saw the evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas goes to Tarsus uh, to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brings him back to the church of Antioch. And both of them stayed with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. And then it gives this little detail and it's a parenthetical thought. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Why? Why at Antioch were they first called Christians, not before this? Because those who were followers of Jesus in Jerusalem were Jews. They knew what to call Jews. They were Jews. There were just some Jews who did believe Jesus was the Messiah and some Jews that did not. But they didn't change who they were. They were still Jewish. They were just either were or were not followers of Jesus. But they didn't know what to call people who were not Jews but had become followers of the Jewish Messiah. Now, the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. So what do we call them? Now, we're good at giving people nicknames, right? Like you're, if, if, you're, if you're from Michigan, you're a Michigander. If you're from Florida, you're a Floridian. If you're a Green Bay Packer fan, you're a cheesehead. If, if you're a Yankees fan, you're beyond hope, uh, right? Like you, <laughs> if, like, like if, if you're from Boston, you're a Bostonian, what do they call these followers of Christ? Well, they came up with a name, Christians, Christians. The very first people to ever be labeled Christians were those who were followers of Jesus in a multiracial, uh, ethnic, diverse gathering of people who were followers of Jesus. It was a group of people who chose to identify primarily as followers of Jesus and all other expressions of their identity 
were shaped and formed by that one. You get a little bit uh, more of a description of them two chapters later in Acts chapter 13, and here's what it says, uh, verse 1 through 3. Among the prophets of the teachers at the church of Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them away. And here's what I want to point out. As at the first group of elders from the church that now becomes the sending church for the very first church planting movement in all of history was led by a Jewish man, an African, uh, a, a Roman, a Greek, and another Jewish man. And the rest of the book of Acts is their story. It wasn't the church of Jerusalem where everybody looked the same, talked the same, shared the same historical background. It was the church who represented the people groups that God intended to rescue, the people in their community. It was the church who chose to identify more with Jesus than anything else that had previously shaped their identity. Here's the sad truth. We are really good at dividing. We're really good at separating ourselves into different classes and ranking them and assigning value based on our assessment of their worth. Uh, this isn't new to us. This isn't an American problem. This is a people problem. This is an every and everywhere, all times kind of a problem. Uh, our country here in America, we've never been more divided than we are right now, but even if everybody was behind whatever president you prefer, and everybody was of the exact same political party, and everybody made the exact same amount of money, and everybody spoke the same language and had the same, same uh, heritage, the same identity, if you were to make everything exactly the same, we would still find some kind of way to divide up right-handeds versus left-handeds and we would assign value or, or people with curly hair or straight hair or blue eyes, brown eyes, green eyes. We would find some kind of way to divide ourselves from other people so that we could think more of ourselves and less of others. We're really good at this, sadly. And just because you become a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that that tendency no longer resides within you. Peter had this problem. It was much later after this. Peter, the one that God used in Acts chapter 10 to go take the good news of Jesus to this Roman centurion, goes to visit the church of Antioch much later on. We find this story in Galatians chapter 2. And here's what it says. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 12. But when Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, had to oppose him to his face because of what he'd done, because what he did was wrong, Paul says. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised, and that was something specific about the Jewish people. They were physically marked uh, through, th through the medical procedure of circumcision, and it was a cutting away of the flesh, which was, again, a symbol or a picture of all of our need to cut ourselves away from our sinful flesh. It was a picture of repentance is what it was. It was a beautiful picture. And even in that act, it was a light to the Gentiles, an example to the Gentiles, but it in of itself became valued more than it ought to. So those who then were not 
physically circumcised were thought of as less than. Peter still had that bias. So when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised, but afterwards when some of his friends, when some of the friends of James came to visit him from the Church of Jerusalem, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. Why? Because he was afraid of criticism for those people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. It was his fear of what other people would think. And it's not that Peter did anything hateful to the Gentiles, those who were not circumcised. It's not that he spoke down to them. So I'm sure that Peter could have even been justified in his own conscience. Well, at least I didn't do something to them. At least I didn't, I didn't hurt them. But it was his act of not serving them. It was his act of pulling away that Paul noticed. And now Paul, who had now seen this injustice, was now responsible as a follower of Jesus to do something about this. So he withstood him to the face. Why? Because Paul, who now found his identity in his relationship with Jesus, knew that everyone everywhere were equally valid, valuable to God and now had equal access. And the, the only thing that divides people now is not their racial makeup, their circumcision or uncircumcision, the color of their skin, the weight of their bodies, the, the height of their stature. Now the only thing that matters is have they repented of their sins and received eternal life following Jesus or have they not yet? This is something that God has always valued. The idea that those who found their identity in him would take responsibility to correct those things in the world that were unjust. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. Micah was a Jewish prophet and he said, No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good and this is what he requires of each one of you. That you do what is right. Or the actual word is there is do justice. To work for justice. To work for what is right. To not be passive when things are happening that are wrong. To love mercy. To make sure that people don't receive what they deserve. That's Grace is giving people what they haven't earned. Mercy is not giving them what they have earned. And then Micah 6.8 says, and to walk humbly with God. Why? Because when I recognize that God is just, and when I recognize what my actions have deserved from God, and then recognize that he has shown me mercy, that produces in me a certain amount of humility that causes me to walk more softly around others that I deem have done something wrong. So I am to take responsibility for the injustices in the world, not to be overly harsh toward the person, right? Paul withstands him to the face, probably not in front of everybody, but pulls him aside and says, dude, you can't do this. Recognizing though that he's not going to treat him harshly because God didn't treat him harshly because of the things that he had done wrong. Jesus spoke about this also when Jesus said that with the same measurement you use to judge others, you yourself will be judged. To forgive others as we forgive ourselves. And in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the church of Corinth that he had started, 
he actually talks about the way in which it's possible for us to do this because we see ourselves differently. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, he said, so we have stopped evaluating other people from a human point of view. And I think that's where we struggle. I'm evaluating people from a human point of view, not from God's perspective. And that causes me to value and devalue, to assign rank. Paul said, don't do this anymore. Why? because of what God had done in him, and that's what he writes about next. He says, at one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The life that I lived where I assigned value by those things I could see in other people, that's gone. And all things have become new. I have a new identity now. And now in this new identity, I have the same calling that Saul had, that the church of Antioch had, that the first disciples of Jesus had, and that is to do and to work for what is right, to not sit idly by and to pull back from the opportunity to correct injustice. Now, when I see injustice, I am to show and to love mercy because I walk humbly before God, knowing that God is just and offers me mercy. I see injustice. I need to insert myself, but mercifully. I've been given the same responsibility as Saul and the church of Antioch and the first disciples in that I am to love, support, and encourage those who are following Jesus and to love, serve, and reach out to those who don't yet. So here's my question. I have two questions. The first one is this. Who are those people that you consider less than? If you're a part of our church family, it's probably not ethnically based or racially based. Or you probably wouldn't be a part of our church family, right? But maybe it is. I mean, I don't know. But there are plenty of other ways in which we assign people as less than. We assign them a lesser value and consider them to be less than us or those who are ranked as highly as we rank ourselves. Like I'm thinking of your political party versus those who are in the other political party. Maybe those who don't make as much money as you do. Maybe those who are not as attractive as you feel that you are or who are not as gifted in the social graces. I mean, I think we all have a tendency to naturally, in our default setting, to assign value. And I'm asking, who are those that you've assigned a lesser value than what you ought to have? Maybe it's somebody from a different generation. Maybe somebody who doesn't have the same education that you do doesn't speak the same language or come from the same country, come from a different island, I mean, I don't know. But if you can think of anybody in those situations, or if you can think of a class of person or a type of person that you assign to be less than, God is asking us to repent of that. And then to leverage everything that we have for their good. And that's the second question. What injustices have you seen in the world around you? Who are those who are treated less than at work? Maybe it's, like I said, it's those who don't look like everybody else or for whatever socially awkward reason don't fit in. Who lacks opportunity? Who is in need? Who is disadvantaged? And you are to ask yourself what advantage you have 
that could be leveraged for their good. God came to Moses and asked him, what do you have in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, then I want you to use that. He came to Paul, what do you have? A Roman passport. Awesome, I'm going to use that. And if God's coming to you right now, he would be asking, what do you have? And how are you using it? Because if you recognize the advantages that you have, and you cannot think of ways in which you are using this to bless those who are disadvantaged, then I don't know if you are living the life that God has called you as a follower of Jesus, somebody who's called to identify primarily as a child of God, if you're leveraging your life well, if you're living the kind of life God intended you to live. James chapter 4, verse 17 says this, Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Here's the truth. You have assets. God has gifted you. You have abilities and you have resources. You can make a real difference in somebody's world. And it's your job to figure out what that looks like and how you'll do it. And this is how we end up living the life that God intended us to live all along. So I'm going to ask you if you would, if you would close your eyes with me and we'll pray. God, I'm thankful for each person who's a part of our church family and for all of us. God, every single one of us have some type of a gift or an asset that you've given us. And I'm asking you, God, to show us ways in which we can leverage those gifts and those assets for the good of other people. God, convict us in our heart of those that we have assigned as less than. God, if there are people at our work, or in our school, in our neighborhood, or in our family that we have mistreated because of the value that we have assigned to them, God, I pray that you would move us in our heart to repent of that sin and to go reconcile with that person and ask for their forgiveness also. I'm asking for your will to be done in each one of us so that your will can be done through each one of us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.